sometimes. Uh, today's topic is tough in a different kind of way, and I have a returning guest with me, Casey Gwynn. Casey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Heather. Great to be with you. Good. The reason that we called or that we are contacting you for this show is because of a new study. Now, you've been on the show before talking about Camp Hope and the work that you do with children who have witnessed domestic violence, but you also do another, a, a larger, a broader spectrum of things when it comes to investigating the impact that domestic violence has on children. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do with Camp Hope and the Alliance for Hope? Sure. Well, I, uh, I have, it's very personal to me, this journey. I grew up in a home impacted by violence and abuse over a number of generations. Didn't really come to grips with that till I was an adult, uh, but it is certainly part of my story. Uh, I became a prosecutor. I spent 20 years as a prosecutor, including uh, eight years as the elected city attorney of San Diego. Uh, during that time, uh, my passion continued to be around child abuse and domestic violence, which it had been for much of my career as a prosecutor. And we opened what's called the San Diego Family Justice Center, which was the first center of its kind in the United States with 25 agencies coming together under one roof to provide services to victims of domestic violence and sexual assault to child abuse and elder abuse. And that center uh, really did some amazing work. We saw a 90% drop in domestic violence homicides in San Diego during those years. And we also started a camp as part of that center called Camp Hope, which was the first time anybody in the country had created a specialized camping program focused on children who had witnessed domestic violence or, or, or who had experienced child abuse. So that's my background. Um, the Alliance for Hope International, the organization I'm now honored to lead uh, with our CEO, Gail Strack, uh, was an organization that grew out of the San Diego Family Justice Center after I was on Oprah Winfrey in 2003, and then President Bush created a national initiative to create more of these centers around the country. Uh, we created a nonprofit, and since I left office, we have been developing that effort. So we have about 130 family justice centers in the country now. We're in about 20 uh, different countries around the world as well with our centers. And our focus is really how do you get people to work collaboratively together to really help victims of trauma, violence, and abuse, both adults and children. And Camp Hope went from a little program uh, with some picnic tables out of the lake in East San Diego County uh, to a national initiative. We'll be in 14 states next summer with Camp Hope America, uh, focused on how we That's can mitigate amazing. trauma in the lives of kids. Because, it, it, you know, 20 years ago, people didn't talk a whole lot about children who were witnessing domestic violence. Um, it was kind of assumed that kids were resilient, they'd bounce back, you know, no harm, no, no foul. And you still see courts mm -hmm. insisting that children have contact with abusive parents. Um, uh, and, you know, so the idea, the concept that we need to focus on these kids, um, I can see where it was very a very unique concept. And um, I, I applaud you. Uh, for focusing on that. That's terrific. But you've also, and the Alliance for Hope has also gone a little bit broader, as you mentioned. And what are some of the things, what's some of the research that you've been focusing on? Well, our particular interests are really around uh, where does the rage of perpetrators of violence and abuse come from? Uh, where do we raise our criminals in America? Uh, where can we focus if we really want to make a difference? I spent 20 years of my life 
as a prosecutor. And in those early years as a prosecutor, I honestly believed that we could arrest and prosecute our way out of the problem of child abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault. And I loved putting people in jail. It was very satisfying. It was a quick solution uh, to what appeared to be the problem. And I didn't give much thought to where are these guys coming from. Uh, and if it's intimate partner violence, most of our perpetrators are men, but some of them are women. So where are these men and women coming from who have rage and are violent and abusive? We just didn't spend much time there. And now we have really connected those things. So we do work that all connects around this idea of collaboration and all connects around the idea of where do the most dangerous people in the world come from? What's the genesis of it? And then how do they manifest themselves in society? So we have been doing published research now for quite a number of years at Alliance for Hope International, uh, both around uh, what's referred to as the impact of adverse childhood experiences. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Cheering for the Children about the impact of childhood trauma on adult illness, disease, victimization, and criminality. And we have spent a lot of time really focusing on the most dangerous uh, kind of perpetrators on the planet that show themselves in uh, the killing of law enforcement officers, in mass shootings, in mass murders. And we have connected those primarily men uh, back to long histories of childhood trauma, violence, and abuse. Wow. Um, I suspect that a number of people have tried to make that connection in the past, but there wasn't data to support it. How did this study come about? And what were the results of it? Well, what we originally were focused on is we originally started focusing on the relationship between women who were being strangled by men in abusive relationships and what the likelihood was that they would later be killed. And we weren't the only ones kind of doing this work. Dr. Jackie Campbell at Johns Hopkins University and Nancy Glass and others were doing this work as well. But we saw early on that in most of the domestic violence homicides in this country, and certainly this was true in San Diego, we were seeing that there were these so-called choking incidents where a man had put his hand or hands around a woman's neck or had applied some kind of carotid restraint or neck restraint to her, choking her uh, in an assault, and then later uh, would kill her. And initially, we didn't pay much attention to the choking piece because when he killed her, he usually shot her. He didn't strangle her to death. And so the real focus for us was on the guns. It wasn't so much on the choking, but we did see it early on. And the more we started focusing on it, it, be, it became very clear to us that men who strangled women were their killers, most likely. If they were going to be murdered, they would be murdered by the man who had previously choked them in that intimate relationship. In fact, in the research back maybe 10 years ago now, uh, it, was, it became pretty clear that if a man places his hand around a woman's neck one time, he is 750% more likely to later kill her. That's just placing his hands around her neck one time in an intimate relationship. We just actually uh, met with Dr. Jackie Campbell at Johns Hopkins, and in new research that's not yet out, that percentage is going to go well over 1,000% more likely to later kill her. Uh, the 750% number was low uh, 10 years ago from what we're now seeing in some of the research. So we started there. We started with men choking women 
and then what happens to that woman? Does her likelihood of getting murdered go up after she has been, quote, choked, unquote? And we started to understand that what women were telling us, that he choked me, wasn't really choking. Choking is when food gets caught in your throat. It's an external, it's an internal kind of thing going on. Strangulation is an external thing, pressure getting applied to the neck. Women don't say they got strangled, but that's exactly what was happening is this wasn't choking. This is really strangulation. So that was our beginning, was first focusing on women and what happened to women after they'd been choked. And then we began to look at how does this connect to other things. And today, we can say emphatically that men who strangle women are the most dangerous men on the planet. They're not just more likely to kill their partner. They're more likely to kill police officers. They're more likely to commit a mass murder. Uh, They're more likely to become a terrorist in a mass killing situation. Men who strangle women are the most dangerous men on the planet. How do they get that way? Well, without a doubt, the men that we're talking about as we're tracking these now from terrorist incidents to uh, mass shootings uh, across the country, the number one correlation is childhood trauma. Uh, We're not finding any of these guys that grew up in healthy functional homes. Uh, in America, we yeah, raise our criminals I'm at home. Here because do any of us grow up? I mean, isn't the, the Cosby home and Fathers Knows Best? I mean, are, are those real? I mean, do any of us actually grow up in a healthy, normal home? Well, the answer actually is yes. I I okay. chuckle a little bit about that because uh, as a prosecutor for 20 years and having grown up in a home with violence and abuse, I actually didn't think there was any such thing as a healthy, functional home. Uh, But when we went through the Adverse Childhood Experience Study with Dr. Vincent Felitti and Dr. Robert Onda, uh, we began to see that that's actually not true. Uh, About uh, 30%, little over 30% of the American public uh, grows up in a home where there is no violence, abuse, uh, divorce, uh, incarcerated parent, drug or alcohol abuse. My wife grew up in in a home without violence or abuse of any kind. It doesn't mean she doesn't have issues in life or trauma issues. She did, after all, marry me. Uh, But she (laughs) she doesn't have the same kind of trauma issues that I have had to deal with uh, because those things weren't present in her home. So about a third of the American public does grow up in a home without violence, abuse, um, screaming, raging parents, drug or alcohol abuse, mental illness in the home. But the other side of that is, in the ACE study, we found that 67% of the American public does grow up in a home with some kind of trauma. The number one trauma usually being divorce, um, and then, of course, other traumas going along with that. Um, It would be interesting to me to see if there's more trauma because of divorce or if there was more trauma for before we had such common divorce, you know, 50 years ago. I don't think anybody was doing the studies, you know, 50 or 60 years ago. Um, But it would be interesting to me, you know, because I I don't know, as a a person who's been divorced, I don't know of anybody who has ever divorced without thinking, is this going to be worse or better for my children? And you you know it's going to be tough on your children, but you just don't know whether you should stay and tough it out or whether, you know, I mean, it yeah. would be interesting to to be able to compare that. Mm. But, yeah, divorce is huge. And then you throw in the abuse 
as a, the reason for divorce or coincidentally with a divorce, mm-hmm. and then you throw in other layer after other layer after other layer. We had Dr. Uh, Felitti on the show uh, a few months ago to talk about his ACEs study. D- delightful man. And finally, I mean, it's amazing to me that it's taken 30 years for, for his uh, research to really become well-known uh, in education and, uh, you know, different fields. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, amazing. It's amazing how these things that happen to us as children um, stick with us and in some cases do more than just affect us negatively. They turn us into people that we don't necessarily want to see. Um, am I oversimplifying mm-hmm. that? Well, I think there's really two sides to the ACEs research. Uh, The one side is that if you experience significant trauma in your life growing up uh, and using the categories that uh, Dr. Felitti used in the ACE study kind of frames those, you know, you witnessed domestic violence, you were physically or sexually abused, you had a parent who was drug or alcohol addicted, you had a parent with a mental illness issue, you had parents who did go through a divorce or a parent who was incarcerated. Each of those things, you know, has a point in the ACE study. And the reality is that that all those things have impacts. The other side of the ACE study, though, is that a ton of people grow up with violence and abuse, with trauma in their childhood, and they grow up to be healthy, functional adults, and they don't go on to abuse others. Uh, and they don't go on to become uh, like their parents in a variety of ways that may have been traumatizing to them as a children. So we really, when we talk about ACEs, we need to talk about unmitigated trauma, not just trauma. We all experience trauma. There's not a person alive that has a heart beating in their chest that hasn't experienced trauma in their life. The The question is, are you able to mitigate that trauma? Do you have protective factors in your life? Do you have ways that you overcome it or not? Uh, And people that don't have ways that they mitigate trauma, that don't have things that come in and intervene and help their brains develop in other ways or help them overcome the trauma, those are the ones that populate the mental health facilities and the prisons of this country. Not everybody uh, that grows up with trauma ends up uh, doing terrible things to others as an adult. Uh, In fact, that percentage is actually relatively low. Uh, But I think it's still important to acknowledge what Dr. Felitti found, which is that the prevalence rates and the likelihood of negative outcomes as an adult do connect to childhood trauma. I mean, you can't look at ACEs and say, you know, if you're a four on the ACE scale, this is a zero to 10 scale, if you're a four on the ACE scale, the likelihood of you attempting suicide as an adult goes up 1,200%. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody that's a four on the ACE scale attempts suicide as an adult. Uh, I am greater than a four on the ACE scale, and I have never attempted suicide as an adult. However, the prevalence rates are pretty much indisputable. I mean, the ACE study has been done now in more than 30 states. Uh, Versions of it are now being done around the world. And when you see prevalence rates, you can't really ignore them. You are more likely to become suicidal as an adult if you grew up in a trauma-exposed home than if you didn't. That's just the truth. You're more likely to have heart disease as an adult if you grew up in a trauma-exposed home than if you didn't. You can't really argue with this published research on ACEs. For me, the real question is, okay, so bad things happen to everybody. How do you mitigate it? That's the real issue, and that's really the passion of my life now is how do you mitigate a high ACE score? 
And that brings us to the Pathways to Hope project, which is what precipitated our whole discussion. Tell me, please, what is that Pathways to Hope project? Well, the Pathways to Hope project really grew out of Camp Hope. Uh, We started camp initially in 2003 at the San Diego Family Justice Center. It was just a week of camp. Uh, I was just taking kids into the mountains east of San Diego. We were on a lake. Uh, We taught them how to wakeboard and water ski. We went tubing. We did kayaking. We did arts. We did drama. Uh, We did lots of things. We just gave children their childhood back in those early years of Camp Hope. As we um, got more sophisticated with Camp Hope uh, in later years, about 10 years later, we started saying, we see this change in the kids from a week of camp, but we don't know what it is. Let's figure out if we can measure it. And that's when I met Dr. Chan Hellman at the University of Oklahoma, who was one of the leading hope researchers in America. That's when I found out that hope was actually measurable, that hope is a science, it's not just an emotion, and that you can measure hope in people's lives. And we started measuring hope. As Camp Hope moved from San Diego all across the state of California, we started measuring hope and resiliency in the lives of these kids. And we saw that Based on what we did, how we did it, what kind of curriculum we used, what our programming was, we could increase hope scores in kids' lives quite significantly. And that research is now published. We've pu- published in the Child and Adolescent Social Work Journal. We published in, our, in, uh, in the book I wrote, Cheering for the Children, in 2015. And we have two academic studies now pending publication around Camp Hope, um, peer-reviewed academic studies to show the outcomes of camp. But within a couple of years of starting to measure hope and seeing this amazing change in kids from a week of camp, we started asking the question, can we maintain it? What happens when they go back from camp? What happens a week later, a month later, two months later, three months later? And the answer was their hope started to decline again. We actually were able to see a, a decline in their hope scores. When they didn't have that ongoing relationship with others, they didn't have things to look forward to, They didn't have other activities to participate in throughout the year. And that's what led to the creation of the Pathways to Hope project was this realization uh, that we needed to develop this into not just uh, a week of camp, but a community that trauma-exposed children could belong to all year long. And that's what led to Pathways. We started Pathways uh, three years ago. And now we have this new published research coming out showing that we can not only raise their hope scores in the summertime, but we can keep them up all year long. And we can give kids the ability to contextualize their trauma, understand what they've been through, why they have certain emotions based on what they've been through, and then help them set goals and find pathways to their goals that we never imagined uh, 15 years ago when Camp Hope started, and that I certainly never even knew was possible uh, 30 years ago when I began my career as a prosecutor working on child abuse and domestic violence cases. Okay, so tell me how that's done. Tell me how you maintain um, that hope uh, after they leave camp. What are some of the, what, what's referred to in your news release as evidence-based interventions that the project has identified? Well, early on, we, we started with a focus on science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Uh, one of our major funders was the Verizon Foundation, and Verizon was particularly interested in this pilot project in San Diego and Imperial Counties uh, here in California. 
uh, on how we could kind of improve uh, kids' interests, particularly children of color, particularly poor children, how we can improve their interest in science, technology, engineering, and math. And we, we wanted to add the arts because uh, our, the director of our Pathways program is a professional artist and very gifted and is herself a trauma survivor. So really feels the power of art uh, is important in all this. Uh, but uh, I will tell you that the major findings of this study didn't end up being around science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. What we, what we found is that the most significant things that happened were, uh, one, kids got to be together every month with other kids that had gone through the same things they had gone through. And they'd all been to camp together in the summertime where there was a true friendship created, a real bond of, around authenticity and a, kind of a willingness to reject shame and blame in their lives together, this kind of aha moment that happened that happens in a week of camp. And then they got to be together and they got to keep seeing each other. And it wasn't so much the particular activity as it was social interaction and interaction with adults. Now, we didn't go to a one-on-one -on -one mentoring model in the Pathways Project. You know, a lot of people talk about one-on-one -on -one mentoring as being a good thing. And I do think that's a good thing. Uh, but I will tell you that one-on-one -on -one mentoring doesn't have good long-term results because in most mentoring really? programs, the average length of a mentor is about a year. In Big Brothers Big Sisters, which is the largest program in America, their mentors last about one year and two months uh, in a child's life. And then the child loses so that I, mentor. So what you're saying is, is that one-on-one that -on -one has a shorter time frame and so it doesn't have the lasting results that – Correct. Um, more a larger mentoring base has. Correct. That, uh, That's right. Okay. That's absolutely right. So we went to a group mentoring model, combining both peer mentoring and adult mentoring, and we did recruit mentors. Uh, but our mentors were coming alongside the kids in groups uh, that we called hope circles. They weren't just uh, hanging out with one child because that one-on-one -on -one relationship is great. I mean, I said in cheering for the children, every child needs a cheerleader in their life, one person at least that passionately loves them and believes in them. That, that evidence is very clear. But if you don't have that one person that can always be part of their life, you've got to welcome kids into a community. I think our findings are no different than what we found in the Family Justice Center research we've done, which is if you want a battered woman to leave an abusive relationship, you don't just say, hey, get a restraining order, we'll prosecute your husband, and then you need to get out of there. She's, yeah. she's in a very complicated, violent community. She, if, you're gonna, if she's going to leave that community, you need to welcome her into another community, a community of honor and respect and care and empowerment and support. You don't just say, here's a program and then good luck. You've, you've got to offer community after uh, the crisis and community that's different than the violent community that she lives in. And for us, I, I it's the same it thing with the Pathways you, program. Yeah, well, Go ahead. your description of that is very, uh, the description that I have used or the, the image that I have used is when we tell women, well, just leave, just leave, uh, without offering them somewhere to go to. It, it, all I, I, I picture a spider hanging from a single web, dangling over some abyss, and it's like, well, you leave, we cut that thread that's hanging you up there, but we don't know where you're going to go to. We don't know where you're going to land. Right. We don't know how far, how deep, how dark. We don't know anything. But by golly, you better cut that thread and leave now. And, right. And, and then when she, and then when she cuts the thread that. and leaves, 
and, and then goes back, we say, what's the matter with you? I mean, why did you yes. go back? And yeah. the answer Clearly, is nothing. we didn't, we didn't offer her what she needed. Yeah. We didn't offer the survivor what they need, which is we, we are communal human beings. We need to be in community. We need to be in relationships. Uh, we can't, I mean, I, I always cringe whenever I see a, a community-based program saying our focus is on empowerment and independence. No, <laughs> we're not, we shouldn't be teaching independence. We should be teaching interdependence. It's just that you need to be teaching interdependence with healthy, functional people that will love and care about you and won't hurt you. But, but we're interdependent human beings. We're not independent human beings. That whole I'm a rock, I'm an island thing turns out doesn't work very well. <laughs> well, it worked well for those songwriters. I think they made a fortune. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you're right. And and I think oftentimes what I'm hearing you say is that um, we're just as we see this with women who are being told leave, 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 leave. We see this also in children being told, okay, behave some way, do whatever. But we're not offering them a, a community in which they can grow and and reflect and learn different ways. Is that? Absolutely. When, and it's interesting, you know, uh, you made a comment earlier, Heather, about um, kind of the, the view of children many, many years ago in kind of the batter women's movement in general. And uh, I agree with that. I grew up in the feminist movement. I, I, was, I was raised by kind of as a prosecutor by an amazing number of women who were feminist advocates and feminist change agents and I remember these good people who are still dear friends of mine often saying, you know, you just focus on – you're a prosecutor. You just focus on the batterer. You focus on stopping him um, and uh, helping her, and don't worry about the kids. She can take care of the kids. The kids are going to be fine because the children are resilient. I mean, I, I'll bet I heard that 50 times uh, in my early years as a prosecutor, so I bought it. I, I just bought it. I mean, yeah, children are resilient. And then even as I started to connect my own trauma as a child with the kind of people that I was sent into prison, and I sent people to prison as a prosecutor for things my father did to me uh, in the name of discipline, and I started to think, well, I'm resilient too. Look at me. I, I mean, I, I, got, I, I, I survived. I went to college. I went to law school. I'm a prosecutor now. So I bought the lie that the answer was just children are resilient. And I don't think they were trying to deceive me or mislead me. I think there was not a, a deep enough understanding of what childhood trauma does and where it comes from. And I also think there was some unwillingness to say anything that might cause you to think that you were blaming the victim because the reality is that there's a large number of adult survivors of violence and abuse, particularly domestic violence, who themselves grew up in homes with childhood trauma. Um, they, they, it doesn't mean they picked an abuser or they deserve to be abused or it's their fault, but they grew up thinking that violence was normative, that that's the way men treat women, that that's what relationships just look like. That's just the way it is. And so I think there was a real desire not to create anything or say anything that was going to blame women or blame victims of sexual assault or domestic violence. But the reality well, at the end of the day are... is that children, children do end up experiencing victimization out of childhood trauma as well as perpetration. 
But I also think that we live in a culture, I, I've said this before, people are probably sick of me hearing me say this, but we do live in a culture where you're not allowed to mourn, grieve, feel bad, or um, process for any great length of time. Um, I, I have a friend who was widowed. She was given three months before people started to ask her, she was a young woman, when are you going to start dating again? She was nowhere mm. close to wanting to date. She wanted to grieve. But every yeah. time she started talking about her grief, she was shut down. When I see women mm. who have experienced domestic violence five years later trying to say something about it, oh, my God, you haven't let go of that yet? You're not moving on yet? We live in a culture that shuts it down, and yeah. you're supposed to think all rainbows and unicorns all the time. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. You're not forgiving. You're not letting go. You're not moving on, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if some of the resilience that you and I might have identified might just be a, 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 a whitewash because of this negative um, message that we get about actually addressing anything that's not positive and wonderful. Is that just my rant? I or think, do you make- I, no, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that people don't want to engage in, in your pain out of trauma because they don't know how to deal with it and they don't mm-hmm. know how to process it. And if they haven't experienced it, they really don't know what to do with it. And so I think that's part of it. I also think there's another part of it too, though. I think that Um, you can have other behaviors out of trauma that, um, that look like they're, that make you look like you're resilient when you're really not. Um, I was a rage filled prosecutor because I grew up in a home with abuse and abuse often produces rage and rage looks different in different. uh, Some guys act out quickly and become bullies or batterers or rapists at young ages Uh, Other people internalize their rage. I internalized my rage. So I was in one sense resilient, uh, but I grew up with an enormous amount of rage. I didn't go to counseling until I was 50 years old um, to try to start processing what had happened to me as a child. And this was after the death of my father that I started finally having to be honest about the fact that rage had driven me in many ways for most of my adult life. And rage was an acceptable emotion. So if I was crying or upset, that if was very man, awkward for people. If, if I was man, grieving, be an acceptable emotion. But, yeah. but for me, as a man, as a white male in this culture, rage was very acceptable. Um, people yeah. cheered for me when I sent guys to prison. If you made me mad as a prosecutor, you went to jail. Uh, and then, people, then I'd come back to the office and everybody would say, way to go, Casey, good job. Uh, because my rage as a white male was acceptable, and it was uh, almost rewarded. I mean, it was rewarded. I got accolades for using my anger uh, to go after the bad people. Um, so I do, I do think that that what you're saying is accurate, and I think that the the benefit of the Pathways program is we've opened up a door for children and teens to get to talk about all of that, their grief, their anger, uh, their depression, um, their self-harming behavior. We opened up a door to say, you know what, none of this is, you're, you're not acting abnormally. These are normal reactions to abnormal experiences. And instead of talking about all the things you're doing wrong or what's wrong with you, we're going to talk about all the things that are right about you and all the strengths that you've accumulated 
based on what you've survived and what you've experienced and then how we can use those strengths to make you more powerful. Because when the children hear this message that you can turn pain into power, they kind of look at you sideways for a good 10 minutes. What in the world are you talking about? How can my pain become power? And that is our journey in the Pathways program because it turns out that the most mitigating thing to trauma is rising hope. And if you can cause hope to go up in someone's life and measure it and know that you're actually increasing hope, uh, trauma symptoms go down. Uh, their goal setting goes up. Their ability to make different choices goes up. And if you do it in what we call collective hope, which is a group of people who all have rising hope, uh, you have an even more powerful recipe for mitigating trauma and changing the endings for people who might otherwise end up going down some pretty destructive roads in kind of their choices I have of coping a, mechanisms. A, a personal story that I want to share with you, Casey, because I think it somehow or other fits in with our conversation. My father, who um, has been dead many years, his father as a child, now this would have been in the 1800s, um, mm. his father as a little boy was riding a wagon down a dirt street in Michigan. And his father, now this person would have been my what, great, great, great grandfather, um, hmm. his father was beating him in the middle of a dirt street in this town in Michigan. And the neighbor came by in a wagon, horse and wagon. He got off of his wagon and went over to my father, pulled him off of my great, great grandfather, and said, that boy is coming home with me. You don't deserve to have him. Wow. And he did. He took the boy home and he raised him. That boy became my father's father, who in fact was very abusive of my father. Mm. Mm. Wow. And my wow. father was an extremely gentle man. Never, ever. I, I mean, I always say my father was the first feminist I ever knew. Um, hmm. He raised two daughters. He was an amazingly gentle woman, man. I've never seen him um, be abusive ever, ever. I mean, even raising his voice was, was a, a rarity. And yet his father, who clearly experienced this trauma, uh, this abuse as a child, was removed from it. But I have absolutely no doubts that in the late 1800s, nobody was giving him therapy for it. And then he sure. turned in to uh, an abusive man. Yeah. Wow, that's quite a story. Well, and, and we don't know, you know, we don't know the, the, the full science of brain development in trauma-exposed kids. We know enough to be very concerned about what happens in the brain of a child experiencing severe trauma. These live brain scans that Dr. Bruce Perry uh, and others have been doing shows us that, you know, an abused child's brain looks totally different than a child who's not being abused. Um, it's, it's not dissimilar to what we're seeing in the chronic traumatic encephalopathy world with NFL football players. Uh, a stage three CTE uh, patient, uh, their brain looks totally different than somebody who's never suffered uh, head trauma. Uh, it's, it's dramatically bigger. It has far more synapses and neurons uh, firing in it. Um, so we know that brain development is an issue. I'm, I'm just talking to some dear friends of ours who adopted a little boy. and They don't know his whole story. They got him when he was three. And he's a mess now at eight or nine. And they feel like it's their fault 
uh, because, oh. you know, we must have done something wrong. And it was like, my dear friends, you don't know that whole story. And you didn't, it wasn't a clean slate. And you have no idea what was going on in his life or in his brain before he got to you at age three. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, the reality is that a lot of the damage gets done very early and it can be mitigated, as you mentioned, but it's got to be mitigated aggressively. You actually, you actually have to do things. Now, I'm not somebody that believes that every child that has trauma needs a therapist or a psychiatrist or needs mental health treatment. They need hope. Uh, they need pathways in their lives. They need things that get them excited that they can look forward to. They need people that love them and care about them and model different behaviors. I think there's lots of ways to heal the injured brain of an abused child. And I don't think it all involves sitting in a therapist's office. One of the things that came out of, a, of the Pathways Project is we had therapists this last summer at camp visiting us who were there for the whole week of camp with our kids. And every therapist, to a therapist, they all said, you're doing in a week what it would take us two years to do in an office. And that, for me, tells me that we're on the right track with this notion of life-changing experience in nature uh, in the summertime and then things all year long for kids to look forward to. And I will tell you that the, one of the most exciting things is we're sending kids to college. We had seven kids start college this fall. They didn't go to prison. They didn't go to jail. They went to college. And they're, first, they're all first-generation kids going to college. They have no, but none of those kids have anybody in their family that ever went to college. So if they don't even know what college is, they don't stand a chance. And if they get stigmatized or stereotyped in, in high school, because that's what happens to trauma kids, uh, they act out, they get stigmatized, they get expelled, they get suspended, they get demeaned. Um, and if we don't navigate them through that, they're never getting to college. But if we do, uh, they can have amazingly successful lives because we've mitigated their trauma adequately. And it doesn't mean they're not going to have problems in their life. I always say that the journey out of trauma is never linear. It wasn't linear in my life, and it's not linear in most people's lives. But it can be progressive, and hope looks forward, and hopelessness looks backwards. And if we can get these kids understanding where they've been and then looking forward, uh, we can change their destinies. I, I have two questions. One is, um, you know, again, with the specific interventions, I was kind of pulling some of what you were saying, um, and I would like to know a little bit more about what some of these interventions are. And it sounds like, you know, uh, are there activities as well as putting them in with a mentoring group, et cetera? And then the other question I have is you talked about how you need to um, maintain the contact so that the hope doesn't just erode after the week of camp. How are mm -hmm. you maintaining um, throughout the year for these kids? Well, we give them things to do every month, activities to come to every month, things to look forward to. This, this year we're actually doing some what's called affinity group work. We're not as much doing the science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, except for the kids that are interested in that. But we're doing affinity groups. So if, I, if kids have an interest maybe in being a, an attorney or being a doctor or a veterinarian or a police officer or a firefighter or whatever it is, we're connecting them to other kids that have similar interests. And then we're connecting them to real firefighters, real police officers, real doctors, real veterinarians, so that they can start kind of really seeing what that pathway uh, looks like. And we're also not 
minimizing the importance of just plain fun, safe, clean fun. Kids need to be kids. And part of our theme is giving children their childhood back. So it's not all intensity and uh, high-end thinking. I mean, at, at, during the holidays, we have a huge party for our kids called Reindeer Games. And uh, you wouldn't think that that had a scientific basis. I mean, it is, after all, just a holiday party. And the kids play reindeer games. Now, you probably don't know what reindeer games are, but no, we do know that Rudolph, Rudolph didn't get to play in any reindeer games. So we created right. reindeer games, and we have activities that we just make up. Uh, we use uh, furniture dollies and have sled races. Uh, we, uh, take, we take uh, marshmallows, and uh, we have snowflake contests, uh, throwing marshmallows into buckets. We create a bunch of activities, about 20 events that these kids do with their, with their moms, some dads, but mostly moms, that come to the party with them. And interestingly enough, in our Pathways research, the highest hope score of the year, when you look at the linear nature of their hope score all year long, was around reindeer games. So there's something about the holidays that usually causes trauma kids to be very depressed. Their parents aren't together. They don't get a real Christmas uh, they don't get presents. They don't have anything to look forward to. And yet reindeer games with 150 moms and kids was our highest measured hope score all year long. And I think the reason is because it's a social support system. It's fun. It's, uh, it's positive. And it's what the holidays should feel like, being with people that love you and care about you and being grateful for the time that you get to spend with them. So that's, I mean, that's a piece that you would never think, you're never going to read a textbook about mitigating trauma that says, hey, you really need to play reindeer games if you're going to change these kids' view of themselves and their futures. But that kind of thing is a part of it. So is it fair to say that these activities, that Camp Hope, that um, that the, uh, the hope scores and raising the hope score, is it fair to say that that's helped growing resilience in children? Yes. In fact, we've correlated in our research. So um, the higher a child's hope score goes, the higher their resiliency score goes. It's interesting. Hope is one of those things that correlates to everything. So you can have low hope and high self-esteem, but you can't have high hope and low self-esteem. So when hope starts to rise in a child's life, when we see their hope score going up and it's measurable, it's something we can measure, we see other things going up. So we've correlated rising hope now to um, everything from resilience to what we call strength of character. Strength of character is a validated index that measures things like gratitude uh, and grit and perseverance and determination, some of these things that are protective factors that get kids through, that cause them to be more resilient, quote unquote, to bounce back from bad things that happen in their lives. And hope correlates to all those things. So uh, I'm writing a new book right now with Chan Hellman, our, our researcher at the University of Oklahoma. It's due to the publisher Friday. Um, and it's oh, called wow. uh, Hope Rising. It's called Hope Rising, How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life. And we're putting in everything we're seeing in this research. And we're not the only ones. There are 2,000 studies now in the United States on the impact of rising hope. And it correlates to everything from survival rates from cancer uh, to overcoming trauma to navigating your way out of natural disasters. A Gallup has been measuring hope in the American public, and it's very clear 
that higher hope produces better outcomes in people's lives, whether it's work performance related or it's family dynamic related. So we are teaching to the test. We are focusing on how to increase hope scores. And there's basically three kind of key areas in the science of hope. One is goal setting, the ability to help kids to set goals of any kind, short-term goals, mid-term goals, long-term goals. The second part is called agency or motivation. That is, what can we do to motivate kids to want to set goals and to see the benefits of certain goals? And then the third area is called pathways, and that's helping kids be able to figure out strategically how to achieve their goals. Even if one pathway is blocked, how do you find another pathway to that goal? And then the bottom line in this is hope always rises more significantly, as I mentioned, when it's collective. So if you can create a social support network around a person that's experienced trauma, they're going to do much better out of trauma when their hope score rises if they've got other people around them whose hope score is also rising. So collective hope is more powerful than individual hope. It's really quite logical if you think about it. I mean, it's not... It's not um, counterintuitive in any way, shape, or form, but it's just something that uh, I didn't even know you could measure five years ago, and now we're building our programs completely around it. Well, can you tell me, please, uh, we've talked a lot about, like, lower-income children, et cetera, but, of course, abuse happens at all demographics. Um, is it the same set of circumstances? Is it the same uh, trajectory for children who are perhaps privileged? who grew up in monetarily privileged or geographically privileged areas. Is it the same thing or is it different for these kids? Well, the answer is yes and no. It, it, it is the same in the sense that unmitigated trauma has the same profound effect, whether you're rich or poor, uh, whether you're growing up in an upper-middle-class neighborhood, uh, upper-middle-class white neighborhood, poor community of color. But... Um, the interesting dynamic in the research is that um, kids with higher socioeconomic situations um, tend to have more options. They tend to have more pathways and more ability to navigate their way through things and less accountability for bad choices. So wealthier kids always navigate their way out of bad choices more easily than poor kids or children of color in poor neighborhoods. So the, the consequences of making bad choices are often a greater uh, for poor kids than they are for rich kids because rich kids have other options and their parents often may exercise social power to get their kids out of consequences of certain actions that they may take. So, but when you get to the, the core issue, which is do, do poor kids have a different reaction to trauma than rich kids? or white kids versus children of color? The answer is no. The answer is no. Um, you, your unmitigated trauma is going to play itself out either way. And the, it's, it's so interesting. I just wrote a piece on uh, Stephen Paddock, uh, the Las Vegas shooter. And everybody's looking for a motive in Stephen Paddock's story. I mean, after all, he grew up in a kind of a middle class, lower middle class, but middle class upbringing and you know as far as we know um, you know he didn't evidence all this rage for his whole adult life so why is it that when he gets to 64 he's on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel opening fire with uh, all these um, automatic weapons and the answer to that 
really still goes back to unmitigated trauma in his childhood. He had major mental health issues. He had a father who had major mental health issues. Um, his father was clearly a psychopath, um, and a psychopath raised a son with major mental health issues until he was seven, and then his psychopathic father literally got hauled away in front of him to prison, and he never saw his father again. So to that doesn't show up on an ACE scale. Uh, the psychopathic yeah. father does, but the fact that your father was a bank robber doesn't show up on the ACE scale. But that that development of his brain uh, clearly uh, was not was not healthy um, in those early years, and so we want to say, well, yeah, but why did it take so long for him to play itself out? And most kids that grow up with what Stephen Paddock grew up don't end up on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Bay Hotel shooting people at a country western concert. The answer is we don't know the, we don't know um, exactly all of those factors, but I will tell you that it is very rare that you're going to find a kid with no trauma in their life that grew up with a healthy functional home um, that ends up a mass shooter. Uh, it doesn't happen. Um, yeah. So the, the question is not, the question is not, um, you know, what do we need to do with mass shooters? The question is, what do we need to do with kids with low hope um, and trauma in their life um, that might reduce the chances that one day uh, they're going to open fire in the Orlando nightclub or at the Fort Lauderdale airport or in Nice, France with a truck uh, or um, the 32nd story of the Mandalay Bay Hotel. And the answer is hope. Well, the answer is and, and hope. And the, the, the more probably mundane question, but more uh, frequent, uh, frequently uh, uh, apropos question would be, what are we going to do with those kids who take, like my grandfather, that learned experience, that rage, and continue another generation of abuse and trauma. Yeah. And the answer to that has to be we're still we still have to hold people accountable for their choices. So I Absolutely. You know, there are those that are really condemning the criminal justice system today and we've been through quite a journey over the last decade of condemning law enforcement officers that do terrible things and that's true that happens there are bad cops just like there are bad prosecutors and judges and doctors and everybody else in society but uh i'm somebody who believes that adults still need to be held accountable for their choices and if you choose to beat or rape or assault a woman or a child you're going to answer for that crime and we can't throw the criminal justice system out and say suddenly to be trauma informed means that nobody really has to pay a consequence uh, for their uh, violent, heinous assaults or um, terrorism against other human beings. But if we really want to solve the problem, you've got to go work at the top of the cliff, not at the bottom of the cliff. And the top of the cliff is when that child is in utero. That The top of the cliff is when uh, mom needs the support during pregnancy. The top of the cliff is when uh, that child is very young and we start building protective factors and resilience in that family, whether it's a single parent family or a dual parent family. Uh, the top of the cliff is where you start letting kids know that even if bad things happen to you, you can overcome them. Uh, that's, that's where the answer lies. It's never going to be at the bottom of the cliff. You can build all the prisons you want. You can build the best hospitals in America. But if you really want to mitigate trauma in people's lives, we got to go work at the top of the cliff. 
Right. Well, and I think we have to look at it in different ways. Not all human beings are exactly the same. Not all approaches work the same, um, you know, for each person. Uh, what works for one person, I mean, you know, you talk to mm-hmm. alcoholics and some of them find AA life-saving and some of them go, are you kidding me? Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, different approaches uh, need to be explored. And I think that's one of the things that I so appreciate about talking with you is learning about the different approaches and the growth um, of your organization to try and take in some of these um, differences, even though there's a generality that, you know, you, there, there are commonalities, but each individual mm-hmm. is different. And to have to be able to uh, uh, come up with a variety of ways of addressing these issues. Tell me what's down the road for Pathways and the Pathways program. Well, we're going to build Pathways into uh, every community we go into across the country in the years to come. We're in the process of figuring that out that right now. Our early version of it was very expensive. We transported a lot of kids. We have 100 kids in our pilot program in San Diego. We transported the kids to activities. <clears throat> we spent a lot of money in the program. Now we have to figure out how to shrink the cost so that when we're doing Camp Hope across the country, for example, being in 14 states in 2018, we've got to now figure out how family justice centers and community-based sexual assault and DV agencies that are, that are taking on Camp Hope, that are sponsoring the summer program, are able then to create the year-round pathways program that goes with it. And we've got to do that in a way that's sustainable and that's scalable and that's affordable. Um, I'm not willing to say it shouldn't cost anything because we spend a ton of money on trauma-exposed kids unsuccessfully in this country. I mean, we're spending $25,000, $30,000 a year to put children in juvenile justice systems across this country uh, with absolutely terrible results. So spending $500 or, or $1,000 or a kid or drugging them, absolutely. Yeah. But spending $500 or $1,000 a kid to help them before they end up uh, in the mental health system, before they end up in prison, uh, is not very much money. I mean, it's a bargain compared to the, the, the other side of the, the bottom of the cliff, what the bottom of the cliff costs. But I do, I, I'm with you completely on this. We should be measuring what we're doing, and if it doesn't work, we should try something else. And when programs say they don't have any evaluation results for their programs, I question what they're doing because you should know whether your programs are working or not. And if they're not working, you need to change them. And if they don't work for everybody, if they work for some but not for others, you need to change things. And so the days of just asking for a bunch of money in the social services or in the nonprofit world and then saying, trust us, we're doing good work, I think are coming to an end. I think programs can, should be doing evaluation and outcome work and it's not expensive to do it. We're spending less than $50,000 a year on all of our evaluation work at Alliance for Hope International. And yet we're getting published research out of it. And survivors are telling us that they appreciate the fact that we're really listening to them and asking questions and trying to figure out what works best for them because they don't need another program. They need something that works. Exactly. Well, and I think that also if you're doing a program or you're doing something that seems to work and your gut feeling is that it's working, you got to document it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're in the 21st century now. Unless people see reports and see the numbers, 
you're not going, nobody's going to be able to take that information and do any good for anybody else. So um, it's all, you know, you got to, you got to get the paperwork done. You know, I mean, you really have to, no matter what it is that you're doing, if you hope to continue doing good stuff for kids and, or for anyone for that matter. So great on the research. And um, do you, you had mentioned earlier a couple of other research projects that are coming up. What, what are those? Well, we've got quite a variety in, in process right now. We're doing a fair amount of research uh, in the area I mentioned about uh, strangulation assaults because this is the focus on these rage-filled men and how to help survivors of those kinds of assaults and children that are witnessing those kinds of assaults. And we've got some interesting research uh, that we're doing uh, around um, around the relationship between hope and other kinds of outcomes that we want to measure. So we're looking at, you know, how children grow out of trauma. Everybody talks about post-traumatic stress disorder, but very few people talk about traumatic growth and what's called post-traumatic growth. So we're looking at how we're going to measure uh, post-traumatic growth and see that the trauma is actually not just, I mean, it can be a bad thing, but it can also be an opportunity. It can open the door to hope and to resiliency and to a child becoming much stronger and more powerful than they ever were before the trauma. So our goal is really to start tracking kids longitudinally now. So we want to track them for the long term. And it's not just because we want to, you know, find out what happened. We feel like if we're creating community for them for the long haul, if we have them from the age of seven till they go to college, we want to be able to, um, to know that what we're doing is making a difference in that process. And when they get to college, we want to be able to take them to the next step, which is not getting them to college, it's getting them to graduate from college and then become healthy, functional uh, adults. I mean, lots of programs are putting kids in college, and the dropout rate on trauma kids is stunning in college. They don't make it through. They get in, but they can't get through college because they lose that support system that they really still need even through college. Um, so we're looking at how to study some of those things longitudinally, which I'm very excited about. Well, you know, one of the things that I've always said in the simplified manner is the difference between rich people and poor people. I grew up poor. I married a rich person. Um, so I have a unique perspective on that. Um, mm. And what I always saw as the difference in the way that we thought is that I always saw roadblocks. There was a reason I couldn't do something. There was a reason, of course, I would never be able to uh, uh, buy that newspaper. You know what I mean? Mm. Whereas for my husband, even when we didn't have a lot of money personally, he would say, well, you should do this. You should go do this. And I was always so gobsmacked by his perspective that in his world, you can just go do this. Somehow you can make that happen. (laughs) I was thinking of that Mm. when you were talking about hope. That's hope, isn't it? It is. You married a high hope person. <laughs> so, well, a little of it rubbed off, Casey. Casey, we're coming <laughs> to the end of our time now, and I am just always, always such a pleasure to talk with you, find out what's going on with your organization and with some of the things that are, are happening with the kids and the research. Please come again another time and uh, let us talk again. Thank All you, right? Heather. Oh, Bless real quick, where can people go if they want more information? allianceforhope.com Thanks. We're glad to get that in there. Join us next week, Three Women, Three Ways.